Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Veterans Day, Wednesday, November 11th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, with me as always. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive pause editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi. Hi. Pause, John. (laughs) (laughs) And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Okay. Um, guys, I wanted to read to you something. Uh, okay, I think uh, it's it's been a week, and more than a week, and uh, the political conversation is still, oh, Trump, what's he doing, Trump? They're, they're firing people at the Defense Department. Oh, my God, Trump, and what are you going to do? And why aren't the Republican senators denouncing Trump? And why isn't everybody saying to Trump? And, uh, and Trump and Trump and Trump. And Noah... Yesterday, you and I both watched uh, Joe Biden's uh, press conference, and all of the questions were, oh, my God, what are you going to do? They're not going to, the GSA isn't going to press the button that lets you do your, get your presidential daily briefing, and this is terrible, and what about that? And how did Biden, what was Biden's general response? Meh. Uh, it was really kind of glorious to watch because it contrasts so strongly with the constant fever pitch in uh, on social media, on the, the center left, in op-ed pages, even on the, the right and the, the Trump skeptical right, who are saying without with some justification that the incoming administration and the transition period, which, by the way, again, we're a week into, so relax, but... The transition period needs to begin as soon as possible. We talked yesterday about the Ben Rhodes 9-11 thing and how that's, you know, it's a threat to national security. And that's not completely irrelevant, although it's, again, it's a week. And the questions were, listen, GSA isn't freeing up all this money for for the transition. These documents are locked up. You're not getting your presidential daily briefing. Are you concerned? And Joe Biden goes, nah. We're pretty good. You know, things are moving along. I don't really need them. We don't need the money. The transition is functioning smoothly. The presidential daily briefing would be good, but there's time. So just kind of relax. And, you know, you kind of felt a little bit of the air let out of the balloon in the constant state of agitation and in, in social media in particular. But then it filled itself right back up because they really just enjoy the state of agitation. They're really psyched to be anxious all the time. And okay, they don't so- want to let them down. And we were saying before we started recording, at a certain point, this segment of the political population is going to start to resent Joe Biden for failing to reinforce the manic hysteria to which they're clearly wedded. I mean, it really is that line from Gladiator, right? It's like, are you not entertained? Uh, Trump has caught has given all sides of the of the politically engaged American public sphere if sphere if a sphere can have sides um all sides sort of like endless hour to hour things to obsess over and biden has clearly decided or chosen or come to the conclusion that his special sauce is that he is not going to do that you know all the jokes over the over the two weeks for the election that Biden was putting a lid on at nine o'clock in the morning. Well, you know, when I was in my twenties and Ronald Reagan was president, and then I briefly went to work for him. 
Reagan would make public appearances twice a week, three times a week. Mostly he was inside the White House doing stuff privately, gave a couple of speeches a week, didn't talk to the press, didn't give interview, didn't that was the normal way in which the presidency functioned. Sort of like Hollywood in a different era when Part of star power meant that you were inaccessible. It meant that you could only be seen when you wanted to be seen. The moments when the movie came out or some other than that, you were on your mountaintop in Utah or you were somewhere else. You were very rarely photographed. You didn't do a lot of public appearances. You didn't go on talk shows. Now, of course, it's all reversed. Like stars are on Instagram five times a day and Trump was on Twitter 20 times a day. And Biden seems determined, at least in the short run, to reversing field here and going back to a different way of pursuing the presidency uh, or, or, or being the leading public figure in the United States. And there, is, there are withdrawal symptoms breaking out all over, <clears throat> all over sort of the world, the orbits around political power in the United States. Briefly, um, yeah, I mean, nobody thinks that Joe Biden is going to be the second coming of Coolidge here, right? He's not going to administer this presidency from behind a veil. But at the same time, there's no cult around him. There's not even a lot of enthusiasm around him. He certainly doesn't have a messiah complex, which is a departure from the last 12 years of politics, Um, which is why they're trying so desperately to force Kamala Harris into this round hole. She's, and to where she is uniquely ill-suited. You well, saw her. That she wants it. She certainly wants. She it. wants it, but she is a <clears throat> a lifeless speaker. Um, as a as a political talent, it's she's doesn't have a whole lot to suggest that she's particularly competent in that role. And they need it. They need her to be that. And I, I don't think she's gonna she's gonna help you know achieve that objective. I have a depressing prediction. Yes. Um, despite the fact that Biden clearly doesn't want to feed the hysteria, um, the hysterics will, in the end, absolutely prove capable of feeding themselves. Um, uh, so I think ultimately the predictions about how in the long term temperatures will cool uh, with Trump out of the White House, I don't see that happening. I think I think there is too much of a network of hysteria in play on, right. on both sides. Um, and, and we know the appetite is certainly there. Um, and they can whip it up over any issue, any incident, anything. You, you, they don't actually need um, a figure um, in the center of it all to, to whip it all up. Well, and let's not forget the, the, the changing financial incentives, even f- comparing now with, with Biden uh, to what things were like with Obama. Obama was extremely, uh, he angered the press all the time by not allowing access. He would only allow one photographer into the White House to follow him around who, you know, made him look like, you know, Jesus. So it's th- that really frustrated uh, reporters. Now they're frustrated that, that Biden's kind of shifting back into that sort of mode. But in fact, the the incentive financially for places like the New York Times, for, for certainly for the cable networks and the social media companies is constant outrage. You actually need you need the hate clicks. You need the anger clicks because that's right. what fuels your your business model. And to feed that point, you know, uh, Obama kept floated, personally floated, 
uh, the news magazines for a couple of years as they were in their decline. You may remember that I think Newsweek put Obama on its cover <clears throat> 24 times in the year 2009. So that Newsweek essentially became like Oprah Magazine. You know, Oprah Magazine, mm-hmm. which the only cover model of Oprah Magazine was Oprah. And she wouldn't appear on other magazine covers since she owned her own magazine. And obviously her having her on a magazine cover sold the magazine. And so she was every every magazine cover. And Obama sold Newsweek so well that they just found any reason to put him on the cover. And Trump has the same effect negatively and positively. You know, you release a book about Trump, it sells 2 billion copies. Mostly it's it's negative. But so in publishing, the New York Times has now got 7 million digital subscribers. It's grown 100% since Trump came to office. And uh, no one's putting Biden on the cover of a magazine 25 times next year. That is not who he is. That is not what he promised. And that is not who he is going to be. So, yeah, we are going to have a kind of perpetual outrage machine that is going to create and then dump celebrities, sort of like it did in the Trump era, who were not Trump. You know, I mean, we had Avenatti and uh, Stormy Daniels, and uh, who who else that that you know that rose like you know rose to the heights of Icarus and then flew too close to the sun well, but and also, burned out. But they but they also have a whole lot of backbenchers eager. I mean, you have the Squad, which which dominate a lot of magazine covers. You you have uh, Stacey Abrams. There there are plenty of people on the left who want to do uh, what. Obama did for all these outlets and will actually because but the question is whether the press is going to want to cover that fight because that's infighting there's a lot of infighting yeah um, and that disrupts the narrative about about uh, progressivism in the left that they want to pursue so it'll be interesting to see right I, again I think you know how if you're of a certain age by which I mean over 50 or something like that and you now and granted these magazines don't really count anymore that much but you go to a supermarket checkout and there are, you know, there's sort of people and us and star, you know, the kind of tabloids. And um, I, I don't know who anybody is anymore. Like they, you know, it's it's a joke because I, I was among the most literate people in the world of pop culture garbage that has ever lived on this planet. And it can be like, you know, Francesca is divorcing Pablo. And I'm like, who are Francesca and Pablo? Like they're they're well known enough that they're only their first names are on the covers of this of Star magazine. And I don't know who they are. They're probably they're they're house fixer-uppers on 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 you know a DIY network, or they're on Real Housewives of Pasquaxi, Idaho. I have no, no worse idea. than that. Worse than that, they exist right. solely on Instagram. Right. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> so we could be very much in this realm in politics because what they've done here is manufacture pseudo stars that literally have no. I mean, this is all sort of like uh, the Kardashians. But, you know, degraded and degraded and degraded. The people who are famous for being famous. And now you have people who really aren't famous who are famous for being famous. And this could happen in politics, too. You know, in which you, like I say, you sort of have this, the phenomenon of the Michael Avenatti for three months becoming some kind of world historic figure. And then basically ending up, if he isn't already, going to jail. 
you know, because he flew, because he, because he emerged in such a way that the people were like, oh, really? Oh, you want to be famous? You owe me $10 million that you have been stepping out on or something like that. So the outrage machine is going to need people, but it's not going to have the same quality because it is going to start feeling manufactured. But I think this is why we're seeing the list, right? CNN had a new one uh, yesterday where it was the list of all the senators, Republican senators who had not yet officially congratulated Biden. So the the list making is an effort to try to fill that void because they know Trump is going to be gone. So they need new villains. We need a new villain. And McConnell has been a kind of, you know, chill villain for them for a while, but he's not really up to that role either. So I, I mean, this, I will be really interested to see the New York times in particular, what it's digital business model looks like in two years. Um, if they can maintain the number of outrage clicks and how that's going to affect their coverage as it already clearly has in terms of right. ideological conformity. Okay. So if I'm right and like the, what we're seeing here is a relentless desire not to move on, but to remain in this, uh, you know, sort of social media boil, uh, perpetual boil that we've now seen in the last 24 hours with the perplexing behavior of the Trump administration in relation to the Defense Department, replacing leading officials and putting in acting officials. And there's this all, why are they doing it? Oh my God, this is all, you know, there's two months left. There's two months left. So obviously someone's taking revenge against people that wounded them or or injured them or something like that. And maybe they're going to kind of dig, dig through the files to see if they can find evidence of the deep state so they can release it to, solve Trump's grievance, but there really isn't much that they can do in eight weeks. Uh, honest to God, there isn't much they can do except, you know, be incompetent at a moment in case there's a crisis, then then we will have literally, not, not that I think that there was any particular reason to think that Mark Esper was wildly competent or something like that, but, you know, if they if he fires Gina Haspel at CIA and he fires Chris Ray at, at, at the FBI, then they'll be headless. Well, so who cares? Like they're not going to be running the place. Every one of these people is going to be out at noon on the 20th of January, frog marched out of the building if they haven't left on their own. It's not, it's, it's not a completely dismissible prospect, but it is entirely hypothetical. But so much of what we're talking about is entirely hypothetical. And unless you treat it as an eventuality, an imminent eventuality, you're dismissing it uh, unfairly and unjustly and uh, in a way that exposes your, I guess, sort of your uh, fealty to Trump that you never actually exposed. Like, now is the time when everybody should be jumping on the Trump train, right? At the nadir of his political influence, all of a sudden, these people who are who are saying, you know, calm down, are being talked to like, you know, look at you defending Trump at this, at this so it's such a dangerous moment. Like, anybody has any fealty to this guy now. Like if you're defending, are if you're saying come down people. now, you are supremely principled. No, but there are plenty of people who have fealty to him. It's Ezra Cohen Watnick who just went to the Defense Department, and it's Joey Tata or whatever the hell his name is who went to the Joey Defense Tata. Department, and it's it's this guy McEntee who uh, who is now head of presidential personnel, whom John Kelly had marched out of the White House because he was a gambler and had and apparently had people circling around demanding that he pay them back his gambling debts he is a 30 year old lunatic uh you know former third rank college football player so trump likes him cuz he's athletic-y. 
So now he's the head of presidential personnel, and he's the one who's like firing agency heads to put people in, maybe just to goose their resume so they can say they were acting director of AID or something like that. So yeah, there are loyal people to Trump, um, but you know they. Uh, I was going to use an analogy I don't want to use because it. I, I'm now making a movie analogy, not a historical analogy. Okay, I'm making this very clear. This is not a historical analogy because I don't know what went on there. But it's like the guys in the scene in Downfall in the bunker trying to explain that, no, the war is not going to be won. You know, and the people who are that that's who's left and they're all firing everybody else and none of it is going to matter. Again, not a historical analogy a movie scene analogy i'm saying this 70 times so nobody says that i was guilty of an evil historical analogy it's almost a, a meme analogy really it's you know it's a meme analogy right yeah fagelein 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 anyway um so uh, i don't know what's going on at the defense department but i do know that anything that can trigger both Never Trumpers and the people, you know, liberals and and every hysteric into thinking that they're lining up for the coup uh, is good for at least two days of Twitter, you know, behingusness. And I, you know, it's like enough for, you know, fine. So go ahead, you people, go ahead. Most of the rest of us are tired of it. Like that's part of what the election was about. We're tired of it. I don't. I hate to cite polls because, and we're going to get into this in a minute. But polls that show incredibly lopsided numbers, I think, you know, will tend to be portraying things accurately if the numbers are like eighty twenty. So the first major polling that we've seen of attitudes in America after the election by Ipsos and AP says that eighty some odd percent of people believe that Biden you know, believe that Biden was fairly elected and 72% of them think that Trump should concede and go away. Okay. That's, those are good numbers. I mean, I, I don't know. I, they probably didn't ask this question in 2016 about Hillary and Trump and all that, but they could have, and I, you know, there could very easily have been very similar numbers then. Of course, there are going to be 25% of people who say, it's all rigged against me. That, that's the nature of, of how things are. But the truth is that if you look at this and you think it's measuring something real in American sentiment, everything that is going on now with the he has to concede, why is he conceding? Uh, the Republicans are, are they will they will you know is is not being reflected by the common sense of the electorate, which is like there was an election, Biden won, Trump lost. I, we know Biden won. And Trump should concede. And large numbers, like massive numbers of people seem to feel this way. And so everything that we're seeing on Twitter is garbage. Thank there's, you for coming to my TED Talk. over that 20%, right, as being, you know, I mean, it's a small, it's not a rump, but it's small. But they could do a lot of damage if they don't share our, our, our you know, our universally understood reality. And then, you know, people come out and they say, well, there was this YouGov poll after 2016 that showed like 66% of Democrats said that they thought Russia changed votes. That was 2018. Um, 20, that was in 2018, yeah. Either way, and that they didn't believe that. It was just tribal signifying. It was in-group signaling. Yeah, but they could have believed uh, yeah, it. Yeah, I don't agree matter. With In some ways, it doesn't matter whether they believed it or not. That's more importantly the point. Same the thing. It's like, no, Trump shouldn't concede, say, 28% of the public. Well, 
you know what? 28% of the public think that, you know, but 31% of Jews believe in the divinity of Jesus, according to a Pew poll. I mean, you know, like, so what? Like, that doesn't, you know. The, the confu- I think the confusing thing is that Trump has always been the, represented the 20 percenters, right? Like, that that was what was unusual about him for winning that election. That's usually what you see in a fringe candidate somewhere else or, like, some weird local official. He won, and he actually represents a version of the tinfoil hat wearing, you know, conspiracy is his go-to it always has been i mean he was a he was an obama birther i mean this so by the way but what was once so so menacing and even potentially dangerous is now humiliating right he's on twitter now saying abc washington post polls quote produced a possibly illegal suppression poll just before the election suggesting that these polls are illegal desperation embarrassing well the projection of impotence is unbelievable Right. right well that and that was you know, I Biden yesterday, Biden, a blunderer for decades, uh, who managed to put his foot in his mouth and say the wrong thing. Biden asked this question yesterday, laughed and said, how do I put this delicately? I don't think this is going to be good for the president's legacy. I mean, he said it's an embarrassment, and then he said, I don't think this would be good for the president's legacy. That's where, A, he turned the heat down, and B, he put a shiv (laughs) right into Trump's back in exactly the right space, which is, or the other way of looking at it is, Trump's a balloon, and he poked a little hole in it, and the air is just going to come out, because in a that, long line that, as it that is a- not that is that is not a delicacy of approach that I would have expected from Biden again it is a demonstration that how he has behaved for the last 18 months is very considered and studied and is part of a very long-term plan now it's it, it ends once he doesn't have Trump as a foil or as the negative counterexample and he actually has to govern or do whatever it is he's going to do. But, um, you know, the other thing I thought was interesting was all we've been talking about over the past week is Trump's feelings. Trump Trump is, you know, won't concede. Why is it? Is he crazy? Is he doing something interesting? Blah, 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 blah. Joe Biden is 78 years old. He has wanted to be president since he was six months old. He ran twice. He had to quit the first time because he was caught plagiarizing. He got 1% the second time. He was pulled fascinatingly out of nowhere into the vice presidency. He was not effectively allowed to run in 2016 because Obama made it clear he wanted Hillary to run. He gets there. He threads the needle through 2019 and 2020. This is one of the great personal triumphs of our time. First of all, it's always an incredible personal triumph. Only 45 people before him have been president of the United States. This is an incredible personal triumph. And there was on his face and in his mien and his approach, a determination to enjoy what happened to him. And everybody else in this world is trying to turn this into a nightmarish, dystopian situation in which Trump will, you know, be in the white and will have to be dragged out by the military and this and that. And Biden's in there saying, I did it. 
I climbed to the top of the greasy pole. No, I never thought it was going to happen. Oh my God, this is fantastic. And his own party. No one is excited about it. Right, but his own party, even his own party isn't letting him enjoy it a little bit. Like, cause they're all, they're all living in the, you know, they're all living in the abusive Trump. They're all still. Well, that wash of and, abusive relationship spiral. That, and the election produced some dissat- unsatisfying results, results. If you're on the left, the left lost, the right didn't win, but the right. left lost. And the party is of the left, particularly among the activist class and the activist class dominates the press. So all the messages you hear from Democrats are subdued, kind of disappointed, and by no means enthusiastic about Joe Biden, which isn't reflective, by the way, of the electorate. The electorate is, seems relatively satisfied with the course, the course of events in, in, uh, in, on last Tuesday. But in the press and the, you know, the opinion-making class, they're really disappointed in these election results, and Joe Biden is no solace. Okay, so right. So he gets no, he he doesn't get to have any fun. But he's apparently going to have fun. And they don't have to have fun, and that's fine. Um, No one one is going to have fun. The only people who are going to have fun are the consultants who make $500 million off the Georgia Senate races. Um, Speaking of which, so we have an entire political prognostication data-driven class, pollsters and poll analysts in particular, not pundits because pundits don't make their bones. You know, we basically, we are, we exist in the free market. You want to listen to us, go ahead. You don't want to listen to us, don't. You know, when people say things like, how can you, after you made a mistake like this, how can you ever write again? It's like, I'm writing again. Listen or don't listen, you know? Putting stuff out there, if you want to pay attention, you can. If you don't, you don't. But people who supposedly are experts in elections, experts in uh, public opinion research, experts in all this stuff, they they sell hundreds of dollar a year subscriptions to their newsletters. They, they, they produce reports for which they're paid tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars and all of that. And their entire profession is now an existential risk. And I want to quote just one thing. So a guy who's been around like for four, I don't know, 30, 40 years, Charlie Cook of the Cook Political Report, uh, put out his analysis after the election. Now, Charlie Cook has literally been, his entire business is predicated on making predictions about how elections are going to go based on polling and it, you know what he gathers from private sources and whatever. And in this election in particular, who boy did he get everything wrong? He had Biden getting three. He had Biden getting three hundred and fifty electoral votes. He had. Uh, um, but was had, it him personally or Cook Political Report? Well, I mean, it's like him. Dave Wasserman he, is Cook Political he Report. He is he is the Cook Political Report. So I don't care whether it was him personally or not. It's his name. Okay, so they had uh, Repub- uh, Democrats winning 15, 10 to fifteen seats in the House, and they had uh, a eighty to ninety percent chance or something of Democrats uh, winning the Senate. Okay, so yeah, legislative level. 
Right. Like added the, right. Okay. 19, so to 19 chambers. Right. So they got everything wrong, everything wrong. Okay. So now this is the first report after the election. Does he say, Oh my God, we got everything wrong. We really need to examine our priors. We need to do this. We need to do that. No, it just goes on. And he just goes on the way he always goes on in this tone of absolute assurance. So, but he says, we are, quote, we are going to be unpacking this bifurcated election for a while, but so far two things are clear. First, both party bases turned out to a massive degree. Second, there was little ticket splitting. Depending on what happens in Georgia, it looks like only one state, Maine, voted for one party for president and the other for the U.S. Senate. Okay, A, first of all, depending on what happens in Georgia, there are two seats up in Georgia, and it is almost of a certitude that if Biden prevails, which he will, because he's 14,000 votes ahead, they just ordered a hand, a manual hand recount of the state. And when that's over, Biden will be certified the, the, the victor. Um, but it is almost a certitude that at least one, if not two of those seats is going to flip, right? I mean, I, I anyway, can't say that for sure, but let's just say it's a certain. So first of all, it's not one state, it's two where the senators are going to flip, even though he... Okay, second of all, there was little ticket splitting. Are you crazy? There was little ticket splitting? How on earth... We're, we're, we're looking at California where a bunch of House seats flipped from, from a, you know, a Democrat back to Republican in a state that Biden won by two-thirds. By, by five... A, million votes. Right. And by two thirds, and including in these districts that he prevailed over Trump and in a couple of these districts, and we have the existence of these three liberal referenda that uh, were championed by Democratic constituencies, right? This uh, uh, anti-anti-affirmative action referendum, an anti-gig worker referendum that was supported by unions, and an anti and a and a and a rent control referendum that was uh, opposed by sane people, and uh, all three of them lost. And and in let's say Pennsylvania, so our friend Harry Enten, who's been on the podcast at CNN, said the thing about Pennsylvania: the GOP did well outside the presidential race and the House races. The GOP candidates are getting one hundred seventeen thousand more votes than the Democratic candidates. That's ticket splitting. Presidential race was just different, says Harry. Lots of potential GOP voters just couldn't stomach Trump. That's ticket splitting. So all across the board and Senate candidates, almost all of them ran ahead of Donald Trump. Uh, Not all of them, probably about half of uh, Senate candidates on the Democratic side underperformed Joe Biden. Right. Now, I don't want to just pick on Charlie Cook. I'm using him as representative of how. We have had an event here, an extremely interesting, very complicated election. And everybody in the world of reporting and prognosticating and all of that is just going to try to snap back to where they were on November 2nd. And they really, really, really shouldn't because the polling in particular... I'm going to keep hammering this and hammering this. You can say, oh, look, the Georgia polling ended up getting it exactly right. But 
there's polling all over the board in different in different places all over the country that got it wrong. In Arizona, they got it wrong. In Wisconsin, they got it wrong. In Ohio, they got it wrong. In Florida, they got it wrong. In North Carolina, they got it wrong. In Maine, they got it incredibly wrong. That's there's no geographic, there's no connection, there's nothing these states have nothing in common whatsoever except two major things. One, there is clearly a shy Trump phenomenon that we don't understand yet or don't understand where, how it expressed itself. And the other is that they stink at what they do. They stunk in 2016 and then they stunk in 2020. And because they did okay in 2018, supposedly they fixed what they stunk at. And it turns out they stunk up the joint again And guess what? They stunk it up in 2014, and they stunk it up in 2012. And we're still supposed to listen to them? And the people who make their money interpreting them, who have to defend the essential existence of this industry, because it's how they make their bread and butter. Now, a very honest person, I think he's very honest, Nate Cohn at the New York Times, who, who was the sort of director or conductor or the coordinator of the polls that the New York Times did with Siena College, has a very heartfelt piece today in the New York Times that says, we got everything wrong. I'm not sure where we go from here. But that's not what Nate Silver is saying. It's not what Charlie Cook is saying. And it's not what everybody who has gone to Twitter this morning to say, this poll says that. There's a poll that says the other thing. The exit polls say another thing. How do we trust the exit polls? The exit polls have exactly the same weaknesses as the regular polls. They involve asking people a lot of questions, and there's therefore a bias among people who want to sit around and, a- and, be- and answer a lot of questions, and we don't know who those people are. And if you take that data and then you supposedly massage it so that it, it reflects the demographics of the election, you are then supposed to use it but it's bad. And then, of course, what people say to me as I've been asking them about this is, well, what are you going to do? We need some kind of data. Well, that was my question. What is the alternative? The reason I these don't guys know. keep coming back. I mean, you have focus groups, but they cannot be scaled up to to make projections about the broader electorate. Although they good ones can give you a lot of insights into shifts that are occurring that aren't captured in broader polling. But what's a politician who wants to run in a purple district to do? I mean, they need they need some sort of abstract sense of where the people in his or her district are when they start a campaign. And who's what's the alternative to polling? I mean, I'm, I'm asking because there I would like alternative to, to polling. Polling is not going away. It's not going away. There's no, no I'm not it. saying it has to be refined. Right. It's, but it's you know, it's like saying, you know, well, we had a bunch of car accidents this year. We got to get rid of cars. No, it's no, not. There's no other alternative. No, it's not. It's like saying they used to use copping to cure tuberculosis and leeches to cure blood diseases, and we don't do it anymore because the cure was worse than the disease. Honestly, the better data would probably come from uh, our technology platforms, but they're not sharing it. I mean, the kind of right. the kind of uh, emotional uh, calibrations that they can can track in real time uh, would be gold to a candidate and a campaign. Right. But now, which, which would be possible. which would be worse, though I think, right? Because yes, it, I, it, I, it, I, right. Okay. isn't isn't that Cambridge Analytica? 
No, well, that's no, what they, no, they promised. They, they, promised they, did. they didn't have right. the data. They didn't have it, yeah. Okay, so here's a way of looking at it, which is that instead of asking, do you prefer this guy you barely heard of or that guy you barely heard of? What you can do with polling is ask people, if you can figure out who they are and what it is that they're saying, you can try to ask people questions and then use the terms that I discussed earlier, which is find out what the great majority of people think about certain things. Because if you have two-thirds that think X, if there's a giant error in one direction, you're probably still pretty much in the ballpark. But if somebody says, look, 42% of people think this, but 38% of people think that, so the 42% is really, that's going to drive the entire conversation. Screw that. That kind of fine-tuned sensibility from these numbers, from people who are not themselves living politics or political ideas or stuff every day, that is snake oil. I, I think there's a, another issue here that's been left out of the discussion, which is that it's not just that polling methods are faulty. Um, because the errors swing in one direction, um, it speaks to, obviously, kind of bias, but um, an expression of a disconnect, but once again, between institutions and people. Right. I mean, they they there's a miss. They they're they're missing the fundamental character of a huge swath of Americans um, in the, and they're and, and they keep missing the same swath. Right. So when Trump in this weird way says the polls are suppression polls, what he's trying to get at, because there really are suppression polls, I used to be called push polls. It's when. People call, you know, the famous one was like in 2000 when people called in the guise of being pollsters and called people and say, can, in uh, South Carolina or wherever it was and say, you know, do you know, can I ask you a polling question? Uh, would you support John McCain if you knew that he had a black daughter? You know, that kind of thing. And that's that's what used to be called a push poll or a suppression poll. Like it's a way of getting information into the body politic in this kind of creepy way with your hands off. Um and and Trump's idea is to say the polls that said that he was losing by 10, you know, were suppression polls and they kept enough people away from the polls that he didn't win. I think that that is a preposterous conclusion to draw from the results of the election when he had, when as appears to be the case, his turnout went up substantially, you know, went up 13% or something like that. He, you know, Biden's going to end up with 81 or 82 million votes. Trump's going to end up with 75 million. He got 63 million last time. How many more votes do you think he's going to generate with 48%, 47, 48% approval ratings when he's generate? I mean, that he, he, he did what he needed to do. He turned out voters in incredible numbers but his negative example turned out a bunch of other people and they turned out their people also. And you could just as easily say, if it looks like the guy I'm voting for is going to win by 17 here in Wisconsin and I'm a Democrat, I don't have to go to the polls. I don't have to bother. This is boring. I'm just going to stay home. So this is a, but, 
the whole point here is that yeah, polls are weapons, are tools, are 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 tools for persuading journalists what to cover, how to frame things, and do stuff like that. And then they provide a distorted picture of the electorate, and there needs to be a different way that they are used. They need to be used to gauge large-scale opinions in large bore, because any f- any effort to fine-tune this to you know yes or no propositions that are very very mar- have very marginal differences is insane. But there's also, I mean, the, another part of the picture here is that part of the reason why polls have become so dominant in the discussion of politics is that we've lost things like small local newspapers that used to cover the local issues and the local news in a way that would occasionally in an election year filter up only when, you know, national pol- political correspondents would parachute in for a few weeks to hang out in New Hampshire, or Iowa or Wisconsin. And, you know, I... We do. We have a lot less of that on the ground uh, local reporting anymore, and so there. I mean, it's understandable that you would turn to some other way of, you know, looking at things. And we talked a lot about the polling in the wake of uh, the Kenosha uh, riots and and destruction. And and I we only late, much much later got some local reporting on the ground, and and actually some of the local reporters in Kenosha were doing a good job of it. But that used to be the standard, and now that's actually the exception in a lot of these communities. Another another question that you could way you could look at it is to use Hollywood as an analogy. So the famous thing is like Hollywood. You have a movie, and Hollywood will always insist on spending more if it if it likes the project, it will spend more on it than it should, and it will like try to hire a star because the idea is a star is insurance, but a star is never insurance. Like if you actually look at it, there are like two people who actually you know you can depend on at any given moment to sort of open a movie and help make it a hit. And generally speaking, it doesn't work, and the star system doesn't function well. It's not insurance that the movie will do well. It is insurance for the souls and psyches of the people who are making the gambling decision to put their chips on this movie and make it to say that they feel like their risk is lowered as they're doing it because they're, they're making this choice that will help them. It's to, it's to make them comfortable psychologically. Similarly, with polling, somebody wants to run on X, and if they can just get a poll that says that that's a good thing to run on, then it's easier for them to do it. They're less scared of it. And then the soothsayers come in and say, no, no, use this word. This word is softer. That word is is meaner. This word is better. We've tested it. We can prove it to you through testing because they don't have a feel for it. They don't know how to sell things and all of that. Whereas classic politics is about long-term persuasion and making good arguments and trying to convince people through arguments and results. Right. So how 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 does a how does how does Trump end up at, you know, getting 47 percent of the vote when he was had gotten 45 last time or something like that? Results. That's what people are missing. He got results like they they felt better than they felt better off than they were four years ago. They their their stock portfolios went up. They had more disposable income until the pandemic and they didn't blame themselves. They didn't blame him for the pandemic. He had results to run on. Now, he screwed up because he didn't run on his results well. He didn't know how to do it because that's not his bailiwick. But but 
in the end, you run on how you do, and you run you 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 deploy your issues, and then you run on how you do, and you see how it how it goes. Polling isn't going to change any of that. That's a delusion. It's a fantasy of provi- that provides false security. It provides false security. It makes you less anxious while you're in the. If you're a Democrat, how good were you feeling? You know, in August and September. You were probably feeling pretty good. Then you started getting nervous because something in everybody's psyche said, eh, there's something a little hinky going on here. I don't know. And then another poll would come in that said, yes, he is ahead 10%, 10 points in Wisconsin. And you're like, then they were like, oh, good. Let me take out. You know, but then they need another one because they get nervous again. And you know what? They were nervous for a reason. But this is also going to play out in a way and already is among the Democrats um, about policy setting and policy making. Right. Because you see, you know, the progressives are now doubling down on the idea that the American people actually do want their agenda. Um, and even though there's like a lot of competing evidence that that's not the case and the, the, the clearest evidence is the way that people voted in this last election, they're, they're relying on polls, broad polls that say Medicare for all is popular, you know, more uh, government intervention in the economy is something people want. So I, I feel like they, if they are weapons and tools, they're actually going it, to, it's kind of going to be mutually self-assured destruction if we keep using them in the same way. So I agree with Noah, they're not going to go away, but how as Americans trying to figure out what matters and what's going on in our politics, how not, not talking about consultants, not talking about the candidates, how do, how does the average American who wants to follow what's going on in politics know what to believe? Well, because you should believe what you believe, but know what to believe in terms of what their elected leaders are telling them the rest of the country believes. You know what I mean? I mean, I feel like when AOC goes on and makes a, you know, an Instagram video and goes on and on about, you know, all the things that people like, there's a huge swath of young people who listen to her and believe everything that comes out of her mouth there, but to test against what that belief feels like, because she's a very charismatic individual. She then goes to her party and says, yeah, actually, look, all my followers believe this. Here are these poll. Here's one or two polls that the justice Democrats conducted for her that say, you know, progressivism is ascended. Um, but but it's not great. I actually, I think, I mean, you know, to the extent that polling reinforces groupthink, um, hmm. then good, let it blow up. I mean, you know, but here's my point. So, Throughout the summer and the fall, we were standing here saying, this is to fund the police is going to hurt the Democrats. And then a poll would come out that said no. And then you would say, these riots are going to hurt the Democrats. And then polls would come out and they would say, no one's changing and no one's changing, no one's changing. Then the election happens and the Democrats have a call and everybody in a district is like, what are you, what are you people doing to me? What did you do to me with your idiot defund the police stuff? This was killing me. How did we not know? We knew it was true. But we were being told by supposed social science that it was not. And that is very interesting because it was a delusional effect. It was some kind of group delusion caused by badly gathered information. Social science fiction, basically. (laughs) Yeah, that seemed to somehow asked the questions in the wrong way if they weren't literally distorting it to create a politically correct answer. And part but yeah, of but that's yeah. that's it, right? That's the answer and that's the shy Trump voter effect where you can't fix this industry if you can't generate honest responses. 
but we don't know that they couldn't generate honest responses. What we well, know uh, when it comes to race right. issues, we do have some evidence to suggest that is not the case. We've talked about That's this right. on previous right. podcasts about right. the exit polls, and who knows where the exit polls yeah. are? You know, maybe they're maybe they're complete trash, but it's all we have to go on. And they they said they had that one. Suggest, you know, question about whether racism is a predominant problem in the country, and it was a 70-30 issue, and the 30 was all Trump voters, and the 70 was all Biden voters, or not all Biden voters. The 70 was two-thirds Biden and a third Trump. Now, if you really genuinely believe that, you wouldn't probably wouldn't say Trump. But they did say Trump, in part because they just knew they had to say that. That was the answer that was expected of them. I, I, and all of us yeah. have experienced that. Right. But what I... What, I don't know a single person who is seriously involved in politics who didn't look at the footage from, you know, the riots and Kenosha and various other places and didn't say, ooh, this is probably going to be bad for the Democrats. All of them are in the press. Who? The ones who said it wasn't oh, going to be bad? Yeah, folks like David Weigel at the Washington Post. No, I know, but what I'm saying is... Say, you know, Kenosha was the most blown up, yeah. irrelevant event in this campaign, and I don't think we can make that assessment yet. I, I don't know what you're saying. That Kenosha, the riots, and all, all of the phenomena surrounding the, the expressions of violence around the George Floyd protests were irrelevant to the outcome of this election. That's, that what, is a that's what Dave White already what, settling. He's not but, alone. He's already it, settling on the but landscape. But it, it can't possibly be true because he may say it and they may say it. And Abigail Spanberger and, and Connor Lamb and the two uh, defeated congresswomen in South Florida. And I will bet you Harley Ruda in, in California and, uh, and whoever it was that young Kim beat in California that they all say the same thing. And so what we, we're going to have is that the House races, the, how, the, the fact that the House, not only didn't Democrats take seats in the House, but lost seats in the House, and uh, Democrats are going to have a very, very thin majority, having had a very comfortable majority in the last two years. That's going to be about this summer. That is going to be about this summer. Uh, that's all I can say. I mean, and and they're they've already they're already starting to say it, and they will continue to say it. So, we will gather tomorrow for more uh, thrilling no exit conversations. So, for Noah, Christina, Nabe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>